our precious and most gracious Heavenly Father. Lord, we pause one more time tonight. We've assembled from all over the world. We've come here prepared to learn from you. And we ask now, Lord, humbly, that you would reveal yourself to us this conference. Tonight, dear, in our presentation, Lord, we just ask that the Spirit would fill this auditorium, that you would speak through me. You know the messenger, you know my weaknesses. I pray that all that would be placed to the side, and that tonight we would receive a message from the throne of God. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Not long ago, my wife and I were on a trip. We got to go to London and do a little bit of traveling, a little bit of sightseeing. We got to London and we got on one of those double-decker buses. Now, they're interesting buses. We got up on the top. It was a little bit cold. We were a little bit jet-lagged, but we wanted to see London. It was one of those buses where you could get on and off the bus and you could see different parts of the city. So there we were kind of cruising around London, and, and we got to this stop at Westminster Abbey. Now, Westminster Abbey is a particularly interesting place. I guess at its basic, most basic point, it's, it's nothing more than a graveyard. But it's interesting because there's a lot of famous people buried there. You've got kings and queens. You've got princes and princesses. You've got Shakespeare. Even Darwin are all, all laid to rest in its crypt. And we were nearing the end of our self-guided tour when we came across a person that deserved a little bit of pause. We came to this person, and I looked at it, I started reading the inscription, and I thought to myself, I couldn't help but wonder, what was it like to walk a day in the shoes of this guy? What was it like to take adversity head-on? What was it like to try to complete the impossible? What was it like to walk a day in the shoes of William Wilberforce? See, William had quite an interesting upbringing. As a child, he was always sick. He, he couldn't see well, and, and at a very early age, his father died, and he, and he kept going from school to school. And as he started getting into his college years, he, he really gave well to worldly uh, influences. He was a frequenter of parties and gambling, things of that, and, and he really had no time for God. In fact, William was so frustrated with people that considered themselves Christians that he would just blast them right out loud. He went to college. He met his best friend, William Pitt, and the two of them began to talk a little bit about politics. They, they struck an interest in politics, and William Wilberforce, actually at the age of 21, was voted into the Parliament over in London. But it happened about the age 25. William was taking a country to, into the, excuse me, a trip into the countryside of, of Britain, and there it's reported that he began to read his Bible in the morning and evening. He engrossed himself in the scripture, and at the end of that trip, he was a born-again Christian. He got to the end of the trip, and, and, and the political realm was ready to start up again, and he thought to himself, you know, God really can't use a politician. 
There's no point of me going back to the political realm. I've got to maybe be a pastor or full-time ministry, something like that. But William Pitt, his best friend, stepped in for a little bit of counseling. And the two of them began to think and strategize and dream. They thought to themselves, wouldn't it be incredible? Wouldn't it be neat if we could eliminate slavery? See, the two, these two young college-age students could see something that nobody else could. These two young people could envision a Britain and her colonies without slavery. So they said, let's do it. We can do it. We must eliminate slavery. We will do it. William Wilberforce then unleashed himself onto the world. And I would submit to you this. The day that William became unashamed about his relationship with Christ, with Christ was the day William was unleashed for the cause of Christ. Did you catch it? The day that William was unashamed about his relationship with Christ was the day he was unleashed for the cause of Christ. The two of them thought strategized, dreamed, got ready to rid Britain of slavery. So they started telling their inner circle about it, and what do you think happened? They began to laugh at them. William, you've got to be kidding me. Eliminate slavery in Britain? It will never happen. It cannot be done. But he refused to hear the words no. He went on with his life committed to eliminating slavery at all costs. Sickness struck William many times, but it didn't stop him. Family tragedies plagued him, but it didn't stop him. Many even threatened his own life, but it didn't stop him. Now, along the way, I'll note that William won quite a few battles. He won small wars, if you will, along the way. He, he, he even wasn't completely committed. He, he ran a program for sending missionaries to India, he fed the hungry, and he put in some legislation to rid the world of, of uh, animal cruelty, but he never lost track, never lost sight of his true purpose to eliminate slavery from the world of Britain. At the age of 73, stricken with the flu, William spoke at a town hall meeting. His life was wrapping up, but he still wanted to eliminate slavery. He was still preaching, still teaching, still telling others. And then in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act was passed abolishing slavery in most of the British empires. William Wilberforce, Wilberforce died three days later. So I paused just a moment longer in front of his tomb. There etched on his gravesite for all the world to see for the rest of time were these words. His name will ever be specially identified with those exertions which, by the blessing of God, removed from England the guilt of African slave trade and prepared the way for abolition of slavery in every colony of the empire. In the persecution of these objects, he relied not in vain, but on God. In the progress, he was called to endure great obloquy and great opposition. But he, however, outlived it all. What laid the foundation for the success of William Wilberforce? You see, the day William became unashamed about his relationship with Christ was the day he was unleashed for the cause of Christ. 
The day William became unashamed about Christ was the day he was unleashed for the cause of Christ. God is calling for this today. He is calling for a generation, a church, a you, to become so consumed with one single purpose. A generation which will unashamedly, in their love for Christ, be unleashed for the cause of Christ. A generation which will not just unashamedly proclaim the truths of Revelation 14 messages, but live them. And I firmly believe, as this generation does, as we do, by the grace of God, we can see Jesus come again in our generation. Do you desire to live a life unashamed? A life so consumed with a purpose from the Master, no matter what your vocation is? You missed it. Do you desire to live a life unashamed? A life so consumed with one purpose for the Master, no matter your occupation? You see, there's a problem. People come to GYC, they get inspired, they partake in the seminars, they get trained, they, they get already all, all juiced up, ready to conquer the world, but then they leave with this sense of insecurity. I'm not in full-time ministry. You know, it's nice that you've come to our conference and participated, but if you're not in full-time ministry, you're out of the herd. So our team deduced we need a theme that tackles this head-on. It's not at all the reality that God uses only those in full-time ministry for his work. The more precise reality is that God wants to use you no matter the work you are in. Nursing, banking, graphic design, counseling, car sales, aviation, pilot, student. It does not matter. God wants to use you. So I ask again, do you desire to live a life unashamed? Do you desire to be unleashed for the master's cause no matter your job, no matter your occupation, no matter your vocation? Turn with me in your Bibles to our theme text. Romans 1 and verse 16. The basis of this, this unsecure feeling that people leave with is the reason we came up with this theme. The theme unashamed. Romans 1, 16. Tonight, to me, the relevant question is, first, how do we get this unashamed lifestyle? And secondly, how do we maintain it? Romans 1 and 16, I'm sure there are hundreds of ways we could pull out from this, uh, possibilities for this unashamed lifestyle, but I want to pause for a moment on just one. We'll read it. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In the text, we could explore many different things, but I just want to point out your attention to the word power. It says this power is available to us. The same power that created the universe in six literal days is available to us. When we obtain this power, the result is salvation. But it doesn't stop there. This power is available to others through us. Now, 
my key question for tonight. How is this relevant to us? Where does the rubber meet the road? How do we make it applicable to us? To do that, I want us to study a story found in the New Testament. Tonight, I want to take a look at the story of Noah. To me, there's not a more fitting example in the entire Bible than the story of Noah. And I'll tell you why. There's a couple reasons. Tonight, as I was preparing for it, the story of Noah kept popping up in my prayers. It, it had to be studied. Second, Noah, if you look at it, if you know the end from the beginning, you know that Noah was the last of that generation. So it would seem to me it would serve a purpose for us to study it. Third, can you just step back just a touch? I'm sorry. Thanks. Just not that seasoned of a speaker for that kind of distraction. Third, Jesus himself alludes to the story of Noah. It would seem reason to me that if Jesus says it, we need to study it. Can you say amen? Fourth, the story of Noah, indeed the entire book of Genesis, is under attack. People believe it to just be an illusion of of a couple stories that are all fictitious, make-believe. Sometimes it's good to meet adversity head-on. So tonight we study the book of Genesis, and we study specifically the story of Noah. Genesis 6 and verse 5. Turn with me there. Genesis 6 and verse 5. When you get there, say amen. Genesis 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and there every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually, excuse me, only evil continually. We'll skip down to verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'd like to turn your attention specifically to that verse 8. God uses the word but. You see, he comes to Noah and says, Listen, Noah, all things on this earth are not good. This is a problem. I'm frustrated with the human race. It's not good. It's not what it should be. But... Then there's Noah, and God unveils this carefully articulated plan to Noah on the saving grace inside of the ark. To me, there's a striking parallel here found in the book of Romans. When Paul was describing a bankrupt humanity, he says this, The wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God is eternal life. You see, just like Noah, God has a plan for your life. The natural course would be for the earth and all its inhabitants to be destroyed, but, but, then there's you. See, God God peers down from heaven, past all the hatred, past all the bloodshed, past all the evils of this world, and sees one person he cannot live eternity without. You. So he humbled himself. He left his heavenly throne and walked and talked like one of us. Most didn't appreciate him. Most didn't have nice things to say about him. The masses chose a thief over their creator, but he withstood it all for you. They dragged him to a hill called Calvary, 
Calvary, and there he hung on the cross for you. And despite it all, you were worth it. He knew if he did it, you could choose to live with him forever. Jesus put a plan into motion to provide us hope. Jesus is the hope of the world, and everything flows from there. He is the constant, permanent answer to the evils of this lost world, and soon Jesus will come again and part the clouds, and therein lies the real hope we can believe in as Christians. Everything else, merely a band-aid. Jesus paid it all, and he paid it all for you. You are the treasure found in the field that was worth selling it all for. You were the pearl in the marketplace that was worth risking it all for. Jesus paid it all, and he paid it all for you. But you are worth every penny. His gentle appeal is to accept him as your savior. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Choose you this day whom you will serve. So it gives us clues in the Bible as to when his soon coming will be like the days of Noah. Not so that you and I could pinpoint the exact moment in time when Jesus returns, but so that we can always be ready to meet him. Author Barclay in his book, The Gospel of Matthew, had his pulse on this issue. He said, we must so live that it does not matter when he comes. It gives us the task in this life of making every day fit for him to see and being at any moment ready to meet him face to face. All life becomes a preparation to meet the king. For Noah, it didn't matter when the rain would begin. He received the instructions from God and he put it into practice. Once he encountered that saving grace from God, everything was on the table. You see, the day Noah became unashamed about Christ was the day he was unleashed for the cause of Christ. That, friends, is the foundation to a life lived unashamed. Accepting Jesus as your personal Savior lays the groundwork in preparation for being ready to live a life 100% unashamed of the gospel. Because the reality is when you meet Jesus, everything is on the table. Is it going to look weird to some people? Sure. Will it look irrational to others? Sure. But if they knew the end from the beginning, if they knew the hope that was in you, it would not even be debatable. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, everything is on the table. God looked down past the evil and found in Genesis the evils of the world, and he had compassion for Noah. But the story goes on. Genesis 6, and I want to read verse 13. 6 and verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. But on top of that, Noah had another specific heavenly job. He was to preach a bold message to the world. See, God wasn't willing even at that time that any should perish. So he said, Noah, preach to them all. I want anyone and anyone that wants to accept this saving grace of the ark to be in that ark with you. So Noah preached to the masses. He said, you've got to get in this ark. You need Jesus. You need a Savior. You need it. 
and it's particularly interesting to me the response he gets. He's out there preaching for 120 years, and listen to me, listen with me the rationale for not needing the ark. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 96. The world before the flood reasoned that for centuries the laws of nature had been fixed. They reason, as many reason now, that, that nature is not above God. That our laws are so firmly established that God himself could not change them. They reason that it would be impossible for God to create a flood. God's not above nature. You catch the significance there? They rationalized it in their mind. There's no creation. God didn't create us. If we could travel back in time to the time of Noah, I'm willing to venture this prediction. We would go there, we would hear Noah preach, and as people were walking away from his preaching, they would say, Noah's loony. I mean, listen here. You, you line up billions of rabbits over billions of years, and you'll see natural selection take place. God didn't create us. I mean, we domesticated dogs. Come on, get real. Noah did God, excuse me, Noah is loony. God did not create us. We do not need a savior. We do not need the ark. How many more could have been saved from the flood had they just believed the creation story? How many souls will be lost today because they throw out the significance of a creator God? Why make the same mistake they made in the past? There's an appeal even in the flood story for us to take a stance on creation. Two issues glare at us as we look at this. They rationalized in their mind God cannot create and God cannot destroy. Both errors. To me, it's just an essential building block of an unashamed lifestyle. Once you give up creation, there is no end in sight. You convince a generation that God didn't create the earth in six literal days, you will be looking at the last generation of Adventists. You missed it again. You convince a generation that God didn't create the earth in six days, you will look at the last generation of Adventists. You throw out creation, we lose our relevancy. The doctrine of creation is important. It frustrates me how arrogant we are as Christians. We say, God, I'll tell you what, I'll weigh the scientific evidence, and if you win, I'll believe in creation. We say we shall examine all the scientific evidence, but we ignore one important source of evidence. All the scientific evidence we should ever need is recorded in the book of Genesis. Oh, Justin, that, that's, that's fanatical. You can't realistically expect me to believe the Bible and, and take it at its word, can you? And my response is this. You're not smarter than the enemy. He used a talking snake in the Garden of Eden. What kind of tricks do you think he has up his sleeve for the creation-evolution debate? You want a response from him? He's been waiting for 6,000 years for you to say, okay, God, show me the scientific evidence. Or you want a response from the lamb? 
You want to study science or, or biology, fine. Evolution, natural selection, fine. But at the end of the day, our only guiding light should be the Bible. No scientific theory should be elevated above a clear, thus saith the Lord. And the word of God is clear in Genesis 1.1. The pen of inspiration. Letter 84, 1909. The divine mind and hand has preserved through the ages the record of creation in its purity. It is the word of God alone that gives us an authentic account of the creation of the world. In the days of Noah, the people rationed that God couldn't create a flood. They stopped believing God was a creator and stopped believing what God did in the past. So the idea of a worldwide flood was completely foreign and the mockers came out of the woodwork. But it didn't stop Noah. They heckled him. They, they said, what are you doing? What's your purpose? Give it up, Noah. The waters aren't coming. A flood is impossible. Building an ark is impossible. But it didn't stop Noah. Why? The day Noah became unashamed about Christ was the day he was unleashed for the cause of Christ. But listen closely. A day will come in the future when pressure is amped up for Christians. When peer pressure is elevated to a level that we've never seen before, but my fear is this. God's work goes undone because we would rather look cool than listen to God's command. How many classrooms, neighborhoods, or workplaces go unreached, untouched, because of what we think others will think of us? Justin, you don't understand. If I tell my classroom that I love Jesus, they're going to think I'm weird. If I tell my workplace that I believe Jesus is coming soon, they'll think I'm a little loony and they'll never talk to me again, so why even do it? Listen, if I tell my neighborhood that Jesus lives in my heart, well, they're going to think I'm strange. I shudder to think how many souls will be lost because of our perception of what others will think of us. How many eternal destinies could have been altered had we rose above peer pressure? For Noah, it did not matter, and it sure shouldn't matter to you. Others will think you're weird? Get over it. To think someone's eternal life is in the balance and you're worried about getting your feelings hurt? Get over it. To think Jesus died on the cross for your neighbor, your classroom, your co-worker, and you're worried about your reputation so you go silent? Get over it. To live a life unashamed is to live a life carefree of popular opinion and worldly reputation. You start caring about what God thinks of you. When it comes to man or woman, get over it. Noah's out building the ark and building it to the specific dimensions God had instructed, and they just came out by the droves to taunt him. But he paid no attention to it. He had at the forefront of his mind the picture of God protecting him from the flood. Men and women could laugh, but he was only concerned with God's opinion. 
But notice with me some of his most vocal doubters. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 96. Actually, it started in 95 and going into 96. Many profess to be worshipers of God. This class, she says, talking about the worshipers of God who are foremost in rejecting the preaching of Noah. Their minds had become so blinded by rejection of light that they really believed Noah's message to be delusional. The Christians were the, among the most to make fun of Noah. There will come a day when Christians, when, when believers, and even Seventh-day Adventists will begin to question this unashamed lifestyle. Adventists will say and, and are saying that God's flood was a mistake. Preach only love. T -t judge a last generation? Come on, not God. The gospel to the world? Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people? That's not even realistic. It will happen. People will begin to say it, and it happens now. But as time draws to a close, it will happen more and more. And I bring it up for this reason and this reason alone. Don't miss this. There is a proper way to deal with these people and an improper way to deal with them. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 6, page 151. Reformers, you and I, are not destroyers. We will never seek to ruin those who do not harmonize with our plans. God desires to have all who serve him firm as rock where principle is concerned, but meek and lowly as of heart as was Christ. A rude, condemning spirit is not essential to hero heroism in the reforms of this time. All selfish methods, all ego-driven methods in the service of God are an abomination to his sight. An abomination to his sight. Pretty strong choice of words from the inspired pen. When we assume the role of an unashamed lifestyle, we must check our egos at the door. Don't miss this. This counsel is particularly relevant for those who claim to be Bible conservatives. Careful. One of the dangers we face is how we treat our fellow Bible-believing conservative Adventists. We have such egos when it comes to our perception of interpretation of the truth that we despise those who think differently. We have no tolerance for them. Until they pass our conservative litmus test, they are out of the herd. We must learn to be gracious and charitable to one another. And listen to my words carefully. You cannot live with these people here on earth. How are you going to do it in heaven? Get a grip with yourself. Think of what you're saying. Until they think a certain way, until they act a certain way, I'll have no respect for them. When all along the way, Jesus was willing to pay it all for them. You think you're above that brother or sister simply because of your perceived correct view of Scripture? 
You have no business thinking you are above someone when Jesus would stoop below both of you and hang on the cross. Period. But here's another danger we face. When we listen to a message, when we listen to a particular point, we look around and see who's this message best serve. Oh, good. I'm glad he's saying this. Yeah. Preach it, Justin. It, such and such really needs to hear it. When you hear a point like this, I would express an appeal that we hear in a common song. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Instead of pointing fingers, are you the one God's driving home a point to? Some may say, oh, well, Justin, easy for you to say. You're the president of GYC. You are at the top of an organization spawned to cleanse the church once and for all. No, no, we're not. We're an organized army of young people, meek and lowly of heart. We abide in Christ. A rude and condemning spirit is not essential. Our single desire is to turn people, especially young people, to the church. I love my church. And I only want to see more young people involved in his work. Never, never will GYC attempt to drive people away from the Seventh-day Adventist church. Never. Until Jesus comes again, we will support the work and the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist church. We met as an executive committee in February. We ate together, we prayed together, we sang together. And there in a living room, guided by, I believe, God himself, we came up with a statement. We started with a question. If someone came up to us on the street, asked us the purpose of GYC, what would our response be? Here's what we came up with. We want to get young people to make other young people Adventists by inspiring, equipping, and mobilizing them. In a sentence, we condense the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We want to get young people to make other young people Adventists by inspiring, equipping, and mobilizing them. It's why we get up in the morning and serve GYC. It's the reason we exist to serve our church. Back to the story of Noah. He didn't let the believers, the saints, stop him. He didn't let his ego get in the way of completing his task given by God. He didn't allow his ego to run his life. He kept preaching. He kept working for God. You want to be unashamed? Keep preaching. Keep working for God. The day Noah became unashamed about Christ was the day he was unleashed for the cause of Christ. No went on building the ark in the face of adversity. He was laughed at by the multitudes, but it did not stop him. The believers told him to give it up. It's impossible, Noah. It's not going to happen. But he continually fixed his eyes on Jesus. He continually meditated and prayed on that saving grace found in the ark. For 120 years, Noah was preaching a warning message to a world in need of a Savior. Patriarchs and Prophets, again, page 102. Before the flood, God sent Noah to warn the world and then the excuse me, that the people might be led to re repentance and thus escape the threatening destruction. 
As the time of Christ's second appearing draws near, the Lord sends his servant with a warning, his servants with a warning to the world to prepare for that great event. Let me read that again. At the time of Christ's second appearing draws near, as it's coming to a close, as we're nearing the end of time, the Lord sends his servants, I would propose those servants are you and I, with a warning to the world to prepare them for that great event. Noah continued to preach a warning message to the world. He continued to work on the plan of God that had been given to him to save others. And I love the picture we get of Noah in 1 Peter. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version because I like the way it renders it. 3 verse 20. Noah had a message given to him by God. God came to Noah and said, You know, Noah, I can look past all the evils of this world. It's not a good situation, but, but there is you. God does the same thing to you. Looks past all the evils of the world and says, But, but there is you. Please accept me today. Did you catch it? From the throne of heaven, God could have said, let there be an ark. Poof! An ark would be in the backyard of Noah. He could speak all the animals into existence, all the food into the cubby holes, but he didn't. He gave the task, the heavenly task to Noah to complete. And we find in 1 Peter, he patiently waited. Do you catch it? ripe for Jesus to come again. All the signs of Matthew 24 are unfolding before our very eyes. The world is sick with entertainment. A study in Daniel 2 will undeniably point to the soon coming of a Savior, but something has to happen first. This gospel will go to every nation, every tongue, and every people. Revelations 14 warning needs to go to the world. Do you get it? The same God in heaven who patiently waited for Noah to finish the ark is waiting. Waiting for a movement to finish his work. Waiting for a church to finish his work. Waiting for a generation to finish his work that has been started. Waiting for you to help in his heavenly mission. God could speak the three angels' message from his throne up in heaven, but he patiently waits for you to do it. God could send angels to the world in a second and warn them of a soon coming, but he patiently waits for you to do it. 
That, my friends, is the significance of being unashamed of the gospel. You know God's plan for your life. You know the plan of salvation God freely gives, and you know the mission God has completed you, com given you to complete. And when you view it through the eyes of Noah, you realize this gospel commission, this colossal task, has to be for more than those in full-time work. See, it doesn't matter if you're a doctor. It doesn't matter if you're an engineer. It doesn't matter if you're a nurse. From a banker to a pastor, a scientist, or an accountant, God still needs you. And he patiently waits for you to complete the task he's given to you. Christian Service, page 10. To everyone, work has been allotted. Everyone, work has been allotted. No one can be a substitute for another. Each one has a mission of wonderful importance which he cannot neglect or ignore. The fulfillment of it involves the wheel of some soul. And the neglect of your job, your task, is the woe of one for whom Christ died. Well, I, I could buy it the gospel going to the world, me being used. But you're missing something. See, realistically, it's impossible for the gospel to go to the world. The gospel message is irrelevant to the postmodern mind. Could be a valid point. I've read some of the supporting data myself. There's no shortage of liberal bloggers attempting to discredit evangelistic approaches. One doesn't have to search long to find these experts declaring that the Bible is irrelevant to Generation X, Y, pre, post, whatever you want to give the name to, the going fat at the time. And there is some supporting evidence to this, but I would pose this thought. Every time they say it can't be done, they forget about the miracles of God. Every time we say it can't be reached, it's a mistake. The audience is not possible to reach. We forget about the miracles of God. Never can I see Jesus convening and meeting in heaven. There inside the innermost chambers of heaven, he gets together he calls in his most trusted advisors. He asks Gabriel to get a pen and paper, and he says, we've got it wrong. When we delivered the Bible to our children, we forgot about the postmodern mind. We failed to realize what, the, what would really appeal to that generation. We've made a terrible mistake. Give me a break. God did not make a mistake in the message or the audience. Never. Never have we had to apologize for the Bible. Time after time through the ages, the experts have been wrong. Again and again, experts will change their stance, but the Bible remains consistent. We need a generation of believers that believe this, a generation that takes the Bible for what it is, a generation that unapologetically takes the gospel to the world. We don't have to soften up what's in the Bible. We don't need to change the approach for a specific generation. We need to unapologetically, unashamedly preach to the world. For 120 days, excuse me, years, Noah preached the word that was given to him. My Bible doesn't tell me about Noah begging for a different message. Didn't proclaim to God that he was a generation NT, Noah's time expert, and tell God he was wrong. 
and he got the audience wrong. He preached to anyone, everyone, unapologetically and unashamedly. Genesis 7:12 tells me the rain came for 40 days. It was cleansing time for the earth, too late for the sinners to do anything more. Too late for Noah to preach anymore. The doors of opportunity, promise, and potential were shut forever. Moments of sand are ticking away from our lives. What'd you do in the last year to tell others about Jesus' soon return? What'd you do in the last month to tell others Jesus is coming again soon? What'd you do in the last day to tell others Jesus is coming again soon? You want to live a life full of regret? Forget what he did for you at the cross. Forget about his creation power in Genesis and say it's impossible for Revelation 14 to be complete. It was just moments before Jesus was sold for a handful of silver. Jesus knew his moments were limited. He took some time to pray to his Father one more time. As Jesus stood at that entrance of that garden called Gethsemane, he turned to his disciples and he instructed them, pray for me, pray for me. The world was weighing on his frail body, weak and trembling. He cried out for mercy. But he knew for you to spend eternity with him, he had to continue with his plan of salvation. He knew he would pay it all, but you were worth it. Then that serpent of old came in to taunt our Redeemer. Jesus, come on, why go through with it? You know that your disciples really don't love you? Come on, Jesus, look at your own disciples. You gave them instructions, and there they are asleep, sleeping your cares away. Give it up, Jesus. You and I looked at the, look at the story a little bit and gasped. How could they sleep? What a bunch of worthless disciples! But could the same be said about us today? Maybe, maybe that age-old serpent is at it again. Look at your flock, Jesus. You gave them a charge before you left, and yet they sleep your concerns away. Your modern-day disciples are asleep. Jesus, I mean, I'm Lucifer. I can read Revelation 14. It's clear to me what's supposed to happen. Yet your own church members say it's impossible. Jesus, your modern-day disciples are asleep. Jesus, you've given them examples in the Bible, stories in the Bible like the flood, but they disregard the realities in them. Your modern-day disciples are asleep. Have you been living a life of regret? Have you been living a life asleep? Are you like the disciples at the gates of Gethsemane? The rain came and it was too late for any more preaching to be done. A day is coming soon when Jesus will part the clouds and no more preaching will be done. Jesus needs you.
He wants you to preach a message to the world. How fantastic would it be if your classmates met him in the air because of your message? How much more joyful would heaven be if your neighbors here on earth were your neighbors in heaven? How incredible would it be in your, if your future workplace social was under the shade of the tree of life? message of a life lived unashamed is simple. Accept Jesus as your Savior. Know he died on the cross so you could live with him for eternity. Remember Jesus created you. Remember that created you in seven literal days and take the charge of Revelation 14 seriously. And this message is not just for pastors, not just for evangelists, not just for those in full-time ministry, but all spectrums of workers. I get it now. After a walk through the walls of Westminster Abbey in London and a study in the life of Noah, it all adds up. The day William became unashamed about Christ was the day he was unleashed for the cause of Christ. Same can be said of Noah. The day Noah became unashamed about Christ was the day he was unleashed for the cause of Christ. And the same should be spoken about us. The day we become unashamed about Christ will be the day we are unleashed for the cause of Christ. Let that day be today. Let that day begin at this GYC and let it begin with you. For what a difference it will make if you make up your mind to be unashamed. You want to make that difference? Take a journey with me far into the future. You leave here charged and prepared to live a life unashamed. Time goes on, Jesus comes back to take his faithful home. The millennium passes, you're at your home in your heavenly mansion, and, and life has been particularly hectic for you. You've met a lot of new people, you, you've explored nature like you never thought possible, and one day you decide to have one of your newfound friends from an unfallen world over for lunch. The visitor enters into your gate, stopping to observe your golden sidewalks. The house was built just to your specification, and the landscape is just spectacular. You're busy setting the table, so you don't notice him strolling through your carefully placed trees and shrubs. And then he sees something that catches his eye as he's walking around. It's a plaque. Etched in stone, he pauses for a moment because it deserves a pause. He pauses for a moment and contemplates. What was it like to take on the impossible? What would it have been like to meet adversity head on? What would it be like to walk a day in the shoes of you? And he stops to read it. Etched in stone is your legacy that will be remembered forever. 
Your name will be specially identified with those exertions which, by the blessing of God, ushered in the long-anticipated second coming and prepared the way for a world full of sinners to meet their Savior. In the persecution of these objections, you relied not in vain, but on God. In the progress, you were called to endure great disgrace and great opposition, but despite of it all, you achieved by God's grace the impossible. And through it all, lived a life unashamed. The reality is we have a short life here on this earth to create a legacy and an eternity to remember it. God doesn't think you can do great things. God knows you can do great things. I want to make an appeal. Very specific, very solemn. We've been at this GYC thing for about nine years now. Been planning conferences, inviting people, bringing in inspiring speakers. But we're ready to take it to the next level. We need a generation that really embraces this unashamed lifestyle. We need a generation that really embraces this Revelation 14 message. We need you. The movement needs you. The church needs you. God needs you. So tonight I'm going to make an appeal. It's a specific appeal. It's for those that fit within our our target age group, 18 to 35. Here's the appeal. Some of you, Jesus has already been knocking at your heart. Some of you, God has been calling to do specific things, and you've been putting it off. You've come here already feeling the calling from God, but you put it off for different reasons, whatever it is. Tonight, I want to encourage you to put it past you. Here's what we want to do. We want to create a network of young people, literally around the world, who are involved in the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We want to create that network that actually believes it's possible to see Jesus come again in this generation. But we need you. We need pods of young people doing things for God where they're at. So what are we looking for? We need people that will start small groups in their church. We need people who will hold evangelistic series in their church. We need people who will commit to knocking on doors in their neighborhood. We need people who will commit to bringing others to GYC in years to come. We need people to get on the internet and create websites to find those looking towards heaven. We need people who will get on and create videos to usher those people into heaven. We need people who can dream big dreams and know that God can do them. We we don't want to put a cap on this, and so it's a little bit ambiguous of an appeal, but you know who you are sitting in this auditorium. And here's what we're going to do. 
You're going to come forward with that desire to start a small groups, to get a website going, to get a video going, something like that, and we want to connect with you. For the next year, we're going to build a structure around you, and we're going to unite a global group army of young people. You want to participate in that? Some of you are feeling called, and I just ask you to come to the front. We just need one. It starts with one. Don't put it off. Don't wait. We don't have time to wait. We need that army. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I promise it will be better than yesterday. Jesus is coming, and he needs you. He needs that army. Just come in close to the front. Ushers have some cards. This is an organic, solemn appeal. They've left us on 3ABN. They've left us live streaming, and we're going to attempt the impossible. Because we can. God doesn't think we can do it. He knows we can do it. Gather in closely. Get a card. You'll get two cards. One says, GYC appeal to the movement. On there we have about seven or eight ideas for you, but we also have a place in there where it says, my own creative commitment. This is not an appeal to put you in a box and say, this is what you're going to do going forward. You're going to work with God, you're going to work with your pastor, you're going to work with other young people, and you're going to figure out something. So if you have something that God's been calling you to do, you write it in right there. You take this back to your room tonight and you sincerely pray over it. You've got an opportunity for the next day to learn some things on how to be more effective in this. You've got an opportunity in the next couple days to be inspired on how to do this more effectively. The other one is simply just your information. We want to keep in contact with you. We want you to remember this appeal, and like I said, we're going to create a global network of young people charged up to see Jesus come again. Are you excited? I am. Look around you. It's going to happen. There's a room full of capabilities from around the world we've assembled, from around the states we have assembled, and you're here saying, God, use me. You nervous? Well, I am. <laughs> but God's going to do incredible things. Make sure and get a card before you leave. And I just wonder in the, the solemnness of this appeal that if maybe we could all get down and kneel. Our precious Heavenly Father. Lord, we're here. We saw tonight what you did in, through Noah. We saw you used him to do the impossible. You looked past all the disgrace of the world and you saw Noah. Tonight, Lord, we know you're doing the same thing. Look down at this messed up thing we call a society, and you've seen us. 
Tonight, Lord, we've answered a very, a very solemn appeal. We've come forward because we want to be used. We don't know what that means for us. But we know we want to go to heaven soon, and we know we want to bring others with us. So as we leave this conference charged, Lord, may you seal this decision in our heart. May this be a true tipping point for those that have come forward. Lord, I just pray a special prayer for those who are sitting still, who didn't answer the appeal. Some you're working on their heart. Some may have not fit into the age bracket of the appeal. And for those, Lord, we just ask that you would lay a sense, a, a burden on their heart to pray for us. For myself, I'm nervous. It's not always the easiest thing to go out into the world and, and be unashamed. But we claim your promises and we know we can do it through you. Lord, you're such an incredible God. You look down and you can see the potential here and we want to be used by you. Lord, again, I just pray that you would seal this decision in our heart. May we never look back from this decision. And through it all, may we hasten your soon coming. I pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.